Well, next weekend is going to be an, an incredible weekend here at the Summit Church, so I hope that those of you to whom this applies um, will uh, take advantage of that, and I hope that you've already signed up to do that. Um, I'm looking around this auditorium, and I, I need to do something. I know that if you're at a different campus, this won't exactly apply to you, um, so, but if you would do this for me here at Briar Creek. Um, we have a, quite a number of people that are still coming in, and we can have some, actually, several seats that are toward the middle of it. I know how you are. You are Americans. You think it is your God-given right to have six feet on either side of you. That is your personal space, but I need you just for this service, because of people that are here, I need you all, why don't everybody stand to their feet if they would, at the Briar Creek campus at least. Everybody stand to your feet. If this is your problem at other campuses, you do this too, but everybody stand to your feet, if, and then move in as far as you can so that the empty seats that we are leaving are going to be there in the aisles. There will be a special blessing and a reward. Your mansion in heaven just got increased by 300 square feet. I just got authorization to tell you that if you just move next to somebody. And then you sit down. You sit down so that they can find their way toward the aisles. That would be helpful. Good. Welcome, Summit Church. I trust that by this point in our services, um, you have thawed out. Uh, that's why we had you move together, so you would be warm uh, together here. Um, it is unnaturally cold in North Carolina, and I've already had the same conversations that I always have with um, you northerners like, oh, this is like a warm spring day for us. Yeah, it's just not that way here. Um, it is so cold on the East Coast. I have heard actual reports of IRS agents walking around with their hands in their own pockets, okay? That's how cold it is here. So that's free. Um, I, want to, uh, I want to talk with uh, you this weekend about a problem that most all of us have, but one that you have probably never heard a sermon on before, and that is the problem of busyness. And the reason that you have never heard a sermon on it before is that I am your pastor. One of our elders told me, <laughs> he said, I'm not sure you're the guy that ought to be giving this sermon. He said, you know, you preaching a sermon on busyness is like Richard Sir Sherman preaching a sermon on loving your enemies or on showing discretion and restraint. Um, I will tell you right up front, I am not self-righteous about this. Uh, I would say that if there is, we had to single out five people in this, um, in this church that needed this counsel, I would be at the top of that list. So please hear that with that acknowledgement. We are busy people. We are busy with our jobs. Um, uh, more than 86% or 86 of men and 67% of women um, work more than 40 hours a week at their job, yet two-thirds of them say they still don't have enough time to get everything done in the week. Only 57% of Americans use all of their allotted vacation time. This has got negative effects, not just on our families um, who suffer from overwork, but also just on us personally. CNN did this six-year study of 2,500 different workers and they found that those who worked 11-hour days were two and a half times more likely to become depressed than those who worked merely eight-hour days. On top of that, we are not getting enough sleep, which has its own um, uh, bad effects on, on us. As you know, the average American gets about two hours less sleep per night than recommended, which leads to all kinds of problems, obesity, diabetes, lack of concentration and efficiency, um, and more depression. Um, so we're busy at work, we're not getting enough sleep, we're not taking vacation time, and then some of you have kids, um, which adds new layers of busyness to your life. Um, I was listening to Jim Gaffigan, who has four kids, like I do, and he said people often ask me, what was it like to go from three kids to four kids? He said, three kids to four kids. He said, okay, imagine you're drowning, and then someone hands you a baby. <laughs> he said, that's what that transition is like. So... 
you're busy. I get that. I'm busy. We are busy people. And to be totally frank with you, our future does not look like it's getting any less busy. First of all, whatever stage of life you're in, you feel like you are insanely busy. And if you could just get to the next one, you'll be much more relaxed. I certainly felt like that in college. I was like, man, if I could just get married, have a family, have a job, uh, have kids, and not have all these classes to study for, life would be so easy. I I hate to break it to you college students, this is the most relaxed time of your life. I know you feel busy, I did too, but it's just not getting any better, I'm gonna tell you that. Plus, we have all these supposed labor and time-saving devices which don't seem to be actually doing the trick. Um, You know, I saw a New York Times article that said when we went on vacation 30 years ago, it used to be like an on-off switch, he said, now because of all these you know, ways we're connected, it's more like a dimmer switch, if anything, right? Uh, there was a, a, there, a now infamous study that was presented to Congress back in the 1960s, and the study claimed before Congress that with all these new labor-saving devices that were being invented, within 30 years, they said, the average American would only work 15 hours a week, and the government's main problem would be how to fill up all the free time that people had on their hands. Is that anybody's problem right now? Did, any, did that come true for anybody? It's certainly not mine. Uh, I, I got depressed this week because I was looking over my to-do list and realized that my to-do lists are basically a list of other to-do lists. Anybody else like that? I'm like, I got this list over here and then this list to do. I spend more time each week managing my to-do list than I do actually doing things on the to-do list. Um, so this is week four of our God and the rest of the week series, and we're going to end it by talking about something that really affects everything else, and that is how you set up your calendar for the glory of God and in a way that will not kill you. Let me make a rather strong statement to you, but I'll stand behind it. Here it is. There are few things as damaging and potentially soul-destroying as busyness. There are few things in your life that are as damaging and as potentially soul-destroying as busyness, and the real tragedy is you'd never see it coming. Blaise Pascal, a philosopher of three or 400 years ago, one of my favorites, said that, listen to this, he said, busyness sends more people to hell than unbelief. Even after you're a Christian, I hope to show you this today, it's busyness that will destroy your joy. It is busyness that will cripple your capacity to love, and it is busyness which will cause you to lose your ability to even hear from God. Jesus told a story in the Bible about busyness. Maybe you've never thought of this story in that way, but that is exactly what I believe it is about. So if you have a Bible, I'd love you to take it out and power them up and go down to Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10, we are going to begin Luke chapter 10 verse 38. And it goes like this. If you don't have a Bible, by the way, as you're leaving today at whatever campus you're at, if you stop by our first-time guest tent, they will be happy to give you one. Not an iPad, but they'll give you an actual real Bible. Luke 10, verse 38. Now, as they went on their way, they being the disciples, Jesus entered a village. And a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving. In other words, she was really, really busy. And so she, Martha, went up to Jesus and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her to help me. Right? Now, she's tattletaling, A. She feels self-righteous, B. And now she's bossing Jesus around. 
right? Which is just not a good habit to get into. So we're talking three strikes here. Verse 41, but the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha. This is, by the way, not a way of showing disgust or impatience. Whenever you repeat a name in Hebrew, it's a way of showing intense emotion. It's like putting a lot of exclamation points after Martha's name. In other words, this is very important. You are anxious and you are troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. Many commentators have suspected that in this story, you have two different personality types that are being presented. Martha is what we now refer to as type A. She is task-oriented. She gets stuff done. Mary is type whatever the other letter is. She is people-oriented. She just likes to hang out, and everyone likes to be around her. That might be true, but I am pretty confident that Jesus is not in this story trying to indicate that he prefers the Mary personality best. He created both personality types, and he's got a purpose for both. And he is certainly not saying that no one should ever be busy preparing meals, that we should all just sit around all day, every day, doing our quiet times. That would go against so many other things that Scripture teaches. One of the spiritual gifts that God gives is serving and hospitality. There is no way that you can read the Gospels and not conclude that Jesus was an incredibly busy man. In fact, the Gospel of Mark, it uses the word immediately over and over again throughout the Gospel. Immediately he went here and immediately he went there. In other words, Jesus was a very busy person. Paul, the apostle, after listing out in 2 Corinthians all the things that he was involved with, he said this, plus daily. I've got all the pressures of all these churches that I have planted weighing down on me. Paul in another place would say, I worked harder than anybody that I knew. Paul was not getting up around lunch, doing his quiet time for a couple hours, journaling, you know, and then like, you know, watching a movie and going to bed. That was not Paul's day. Paul was like, I have worked harder than anybody that I know. So he's not saying that we're not ever supposed to be busy. So well, here's the question. Why is he picking on Martha? Why is he picking on Martha? Why not say this? Why, he, this is what I would have done if I were Jesus, and this is why I'm not Jesus. I would have been like, all right, Martha, here's your problem. Your problem is you ought to take a break every once in a while and listen to a sermon now and then, you know. But Mary, you should probably get up off your rear end, and every once in a while you should probably help. That's what I would have said. Why did Jesus pick on just Martha? Well, you see, the world usually values Martha's more than they value Mary's. Martha's are usually considered to be great workers and great Christians. What's more is Martha's usually value themselves a great deal, and they also consider themselves to be great Christians. And so Jesus chooses to deal with a rather dangerous temptation for competent, responsible, Martha type of people. You see, listen to this. This is key. Just like it is harder for rich people to enter the kingdom of heaven, it's also harder for competent people to find the will of God. Just like it is harder for rich people to enter the kingdom of heaven, it is harder for competent people to find the will of God. And I want to tell you why in this message. Real quick before I do, some of you are like, well, I'm in good shape this weekend. I'm like the paragon of irresponsibility. I can't hold down a job. I flunked out of school. I was 20 minutes late this morning. We saw you come in, all right? All right? You're like, I, I just, I, I just, I'm not Martha. Not so fast. As I'm going to try to show you, there's a little bit of Martha in all of us. 
So here's what Jesus does in this story. He, number one, shatters a myth. Number two, he confronts a fear. And then number three, he points to a better way forward. Simple, right? Here we go. Here's the myth that he shatters. Busyness equals faithfulness. Jesus shatters a well-entrenched, deeply held belief that is especially true in churches that busyness equals faithfulness. Many of us like to be busy because it is when we feel busy that we feel important and we feel needed and we feel valued by other people and even valued by God. I remember one of the first jobs that I got when I was in college was with a Christian ministry and I was in charge of running a basketball tournament on the weekends that involved, you know, about 50 different teams. And I can remember running around from place to place for like six hours that that tournament was going on. And just, I just, it was like halfway through one of the tournaments. I was like, I really like this. I like everybody feeling like they need me. I like having to be over here to solve this problem and put out this fire over here. And I remember laying my head on my pillow that night, um, the first night that I did it, because it was a Christian ministry. And I remember having this feeling of just being completely just burned out and was like, oh God, this is such an awesome fit. This is what it feels like to carry the cross and lay down my life for you. I can just feel your pleasure on me. And I just love serving you, Jesus. And I know you're proud of me. You know? and, and that's, I just love the feeling. Now, that doesn't mean that I was doing a good job. In fact, the guy that got the job after me, I remember he was an incredibly good organizer. And I remember going to one of the tournaments that he ran and he just sat in the bleachers and watched it the whole day because he'd done such a good job organizing. He didn't need to be running around putting around out fires right? So it doesn't mean that you're doing a good job, and it doesn't mean that you're being faithful to Jesus either. There's a myth that in churches, all kinds of churches, that if you're busy, then you must be doing what God has told you to do. Jesus, in one story, debunks that myth and says, no, busyness does not equal faithfulness. So number two, he confronts a fear. What drives Martha's busyness? What drives it? Fear. You see where it says she's anxious? Anxious is a synonym for fear, verse 41. So what are Martha's fears? Well, we have to speculate a little bit here, but I'm sure it was the fear that it's not going to get done if I don't do it. Probably the fear, you know, everybody's going to think poorly of me. Everybody's going to be like, yeah, that's the girl that when Jesus came over, there were dust bunnies all over her floor and toothpaste spots on her mirror, laundry piles everywhere. You know, I mean, this is the girl that didn't have dinner prepared. And Martha's like, you can't do that when the Son of God comes to your house. Son of God can't get to your house and say, I'm hungry. And you say, well, it's bow tie. You know, you can't do that, right? So Martha's busyness was driven by fear. Fear of one going to get done. Fear that everybody's going to think badly of her. Now, before I tell you how Jesus confronts that fear, let me get you to consider. Isn't a lot of your busyness driven by the same fears? When you really think about it, maybe you need to do that this week. Think about your busyness and trace back whether or not a lot of it is not driven by your fears and chances are the same ones that drove Martha, trying to please people. Scared of what they will say if they don't, if you don't host the shower or do the extra work or volunteer to coach the team or bring the cupcakes or have the cup of coffee with them or whatever they want. Maybe it's always trying to prove yourself. You can never rest because you're always trying to prove something to your parents, an older sibling, an ex-girlfriend, a high school coach, maybe yourself. And there's a voice behind you and inside of you always saying, it's not good enough. You got to keep working. You've got to do more. 
Maybe it's this desire that you just like to feel important, like I shared with you a minute ago. Interesting, in those studies and statistics I cited earlier about busyness, the Wall Street Journal did its own study on those studies. And they said that a little investigation into these studies, listen to this, uncovered the fact that a lot of people exaggerate the hours they work to prove that they are useful. So in other words, sometimes we overwork because we like to feel useful. And then when we don't, we lie about overworking because we want other people to also think that we are useful even when we are not, right? Maybe it's that fear. Maybe it's pride. You're like, oh, I'm the only, body, I'm the only person who can do this. I'm unique. I'm special. I'm a snowflake. And I, so I've got to be the one who does this. Maybe it's a fear that if you don't keep up with everybody else, you're going to miss out on life. So you always got to take the second job or the third job. You always have to work the extra hours. You always got to get to the next rung on the ladder because if not, you're not going to be able to afford the things that some of your friends have. And how could life possibly be good if you didn't drive this, live there, go on that vacation? So it's a fear that if you don't get higher that you're going to miss out on life. Or maybe it's the fear that if you don't pile up a lot now, you're going to be without in the future. All right, so you always got to be storing stuff away because it's never enough. And that's the tragedy of that is there's always one more emergency you're not going to know how to plan for. Maybe it's the fear that you're not doing enough to earn God's approval. And you feel like maybe one day if I could ever just get myself to a place where I collapse from busyness, completely burned out, then I'll just say to God, there I am, God. I'm my own burnt offering. Here I am. Hope you're pleased with me. Parents, many of you are insanely busy taking your kids all over the place. Why? Listen, driven by the fear that your kids are going to fall behind. Isn't that what drives a lot of our busyness as parents? That we've got to get them involved in all these extracurriculars because if not, they're going to miss out on all the advantages we want them to have in life. A professor, George Mason University, and it is a great pleasure I share this with you, a guy named Brian Kaplan conducted it an extensive study, he finally got a, a sample set, large enough, he said, to, to do this responsibly, an extensive study on biological twins adopted by different families in the United States. And he said, we watched to make sure that one of the families was very active in all the extracurricular, kind of hyper-scheduled. You know, got to get them in this, they're early, got to do this, and violin over here, and all this. So he said, that was one. And then the other one was families that were really laid back and hardly didn't do any of that stuff. He said, after tracing all these biological twins for years, he said, we can confidently say that having the kids involved in all these extracurricular activities made no statistical difference in how the kid turned out. It did not make any difference in where they got into college. It did not make any difference in how smart they became. It certainly did not make any difference in how emotionally balanced they came. He said, as long as the parent was involved, as long as the parent was, had a good relationship with them, he said, it made zero statistical difference. He said, what we did notice, however, is that the parents that were hyper-scheduled, what did happen is they put on their kids what he called a second-hand stress. Like second-hand smoke, you know, they, you, your parents smoke and you, you inhale it. The stress of the parents and the worry of the parents got infused into the kids, and that's what caused emotional problems. What am I trying to tell you? What I'm trying to tell you is a lot of us are driven by a fear that if we don't have our kids hyper-scheduled and all these things, that our kids are going to fall behind. Now, we can do this one of two ways. I'm, just trying, I'm doing it the statistical way because a lot of times that's what you believe. It doesn't make any difference. He said it just came out. If they were smart, they just, it just came. If they were good at athletics, they figured that out in seventh grade and they started to do that. He said all this hyper-worry from the parents didn't turn out anything actually significant. 
And then he said this, uh, or actually he didn't say this. This is what I said a couple weeks ago. I was like, it's what we, um, it's what we, <laughs> sorry. Um, he's, it, remember I told you that in America, we like to have our kids experience rich, even if it means they're relationally poor. And that if you understand the Bible, you would reverse those, that you're going to have your kids experience poor so long as they're relationally rich, because relationally rich ends up having more of a significant effect on the formation of your child than having them experience all the things that you want them to experience so that they don't get left behind. Number three, that's the fear that he confronts. Here's the way forward. What does Jesus say? Martha, Martha. Again, repetition, intensity of emotion. What he says essentially is this, Martha, come be with me. Come be with me. First of all, his approval is given as a gift. His approval is not given to you because you are insanely busy for him. He gave it to you because Jesus purchased it for you on a cross. And God could not love you more regardless of your level of busyness or your supposed usefulness for the kingdom of God. God's approval of you, his, God does not accept you because of the sweat of your brow. He accepts you because of the blood of his son. So he's like, Mary, my approval is a gift. You know, I'm to work to earn my approval. Second, all that we are striving for is in him. Jesus is a better source of identity. I mean, basically he's saying to her, in me, you have the absolute approval of the only one who, whose opinion really matters anyway. So if you've got my approval, if I am saying to you, well done, good and faithful servant, then why are you busy trying to manage the opinions of everybody else? Why are you obsessed about what people say about you? They say about your housekeeping, what they say about your ability to do your job. Why don't you think about my approval? Because my approval is the only one who actually matters. It's a better source of identity than what other people tell you. Isn't what the Son of God thinks about us more important than what human creatures think? Of course it is. He's the bread of life, which means that when we feast upon him, when he have his joy, that's what, what fills our hearts. It's not having all the things that our friends have. It's knowing that we know God. It's Psalm 1611, in your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Fullness of joy means joy that can't get any more intense. Pleasures forevermore means joy that can't last any longer. So in Jesus, you've got the most intense pleasure that will last the longest time. And when you find that, that should satisfy your soul. And you don't feel like you have to work for life. See? The third thing he's saying to her is, Jesus is saying, I'm omnicompetent. So you don't need to be. I mean, think about this. Why is Martha stressed about dinner? Isn't this the guy that can take a Lunchable and feed an entire stadium? You think that guy's sitting around worried about where dinner's going to come from that night? No, here's the better way. Come to the feet of Jesus, find your sufficiency in him, and then do what he tells you to do. See, it's not that he's saying don't work. He's just saying don't start with work. Start with me. Jesus told Martha, listen, that she had neglected the best thing. Best thing is not the only thing. Best thing means the first thing. So you start at the feet of Jesus, resting in him and hearing from him. And then when he tells you to do something, then you go and do it. I mean, don't you think if Jesus had said to Mary, hey, Mary, I need you to go get me a cup of water. I need you to make dinner. Don't you think Mary would have got up and done that? Of course she would have. She didn't start there. Martha started with work. She should have started with Jesus. You see, the question is not, listen to this, what needs to be done? The question is, what does he want me to do? 
The question is not what needs to be done. The question is what does he want me to do? We live in a world of seemingly infinite need. And so the question, what needs to be done, if we ask that, and that's what drives our life, we'll never get rest. Because there's always one more emergency to plan for. There's always one more need to meet. Always one more person who needs us. One more rainy day to prepare for. So Jesus says, don't ever start there. Start with resting in me and then ask me what, you, what, ask me what I want you to do. Here's a couple of verses that we've used in the past weeks I want to pull out for you because they kind of capture this principle. And they've come up in our messages the last three or four weeks. One of them Pastor Will gave you last week. Trust in the Lord, Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and all your ways acknowledge him and he will make your path straight. Well, I, I love that verse because it is so simple in telling me what is my responsibility and what is God's responsibility, right? It's really clear. What's my responsibility? My responsibility is to trust in the Lord with all my heart and in all my ways to acknowledge him. It means to rest in him and then do what he tells me to do. What's his responsibility? To make my path straight. In other words, to make everything come together. In my first Bible that I had as a teenager, I actually drew a wall between the first clause of verse six and the second clause. In all my ways acknowledge him, wall, and he will direct your paths. I put that wall there so that when I quoted the verse to myself, I would see that wall to remind me that Jesus has a side of the house and I have a side of the house and most of my stress comes from when I leave my side and go to his side. And so I quote that verse and I can hear Jesus in my mind saying, get out of my side of the house. I'm the one who makes your path straight. I'm the one who makes the provisions. I'm the one who takes care of everything. I don't need you to be on that cabinet. I need you to acknowledge me in all your ways and trust in me. Here's the other one, Psalm 127. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It's in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil. For he gives to his beloved, remember this? sleep. And I asked you a couple weeks ago, I was like, what is the sign in this verse that you are beloved by God? Remember what the answer was? Sleep. That's right. Remember then I made that awesome joke like, oh, some of you are really close to God right now. Remember that? Yeah. <laughs> that was great. Um, that implies, by the way, this whole verse implies, listen to this, this is important, that you have a job during the day, right? Because you're the one during the day that's guarding the city. You're the watchman. You're the ones growing the crops. But there comes a point, see, at which your body has to sleep. And when you do that, there's this fear. It's like, well, I'm not on the, the wall. Who's going to watch the city? Uh, I can't grow the crops. Who's going to harvest the crops? God will. Because he never slumbers or sleeps. Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. He gives power to the faint and to those who have no might, he increases strength. So you can do what you're supposed to do during the day and then sleep at night knowing that God is watching the city, God is raising the crops, God's growing the family, God's blessing the ministry, and God puts you to sleep so that you can rest in him and rejoice in what he has told you to do and then leaving the rest to him. Martha is running around saying, who's going to get dinner? Who's going to take care of all this stuff? The one who multiplies fish and bread has got it under control. We are to do the things that God has given to us and then we are to judge our success by faithfulness in those things. A few years ago, I felt like I needed to, to learn this principle. And so I, I took out a little business card, a little blank business card, and I wrote down the things that I thought were the most important things that God had called me to do. I needed a priority list um, because I just felt like I was, as a pastor at a church that was growing, I felt like I was constantly pulled all these different directions. You know, somebody needed a 15 minutes over here, and somebody needed to spend an hour of coffee here, and I needed to go speak over at this place, and it just, it was just driving me crazy. 
And so I made this list of 10 things that I knew that God had called me to. These were the most important things. Um, it, like being a you know, faithful follower of Jesus, being a good husband to Veronica, being a good dad. I put things on there about my job because there are certain things in my job that, um, you know, as your pastor, where I really, you know, contribute the most value to you. For example, I know that one of the things that I can do to serve you best is to make sure I come prepared every weekend to preach the word of God to you. And if I let my life get eaten away throughout the week by the tyranny of the urgent, then I might meet everybody's need that has a request of me. But if I come into this place unprepared, I'm not serving you well. And so I knew that if I were going to be an effective pastor, the one thing that I really had to do well is come to this place prepared with a word from God for you. And that meant that I had to say no to a lot of things that people wanted from me so I could say yes to the right things. And I carried that little card around in my wallet, and every night for about a year and a half before I would go to bed, I'd pull out that little card, and I would pray through those things and say, Jesus, did I do these things well? Because if I did, then I have been faithful even if a lot of other people are unhappy with me. See, you might need to do something very similar to that. It's a principle that, um, that uh, everybody's favorite Mormon, Stephen Covey, taught uh, in that book, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. Uh, it's a great principle. It's, it's very biblical. He, he, he used an illustration. He called it the big rocks principle. Have you ever read the book? It, it basically is like this. Um, he, says, he says, if you got a, a bowl of rice and a bowl of ping pong balls, and then you got a third bowl that you got to put them both into, he said, if you take the rice and pour it in first and then try to put the ping pong balls in, you'll never fit it all in. He said, but if you put the ping pong balls in first and then pour the rice on top of it, he said, miraculously, it all fits together. And you should try it at home. It, it really works. And he said, what it's, the principle that he's trying to illustrate is there are certain big rocks, big ping pong balls in your life. And if you will prioritize those, then all the little things, which are the grains of rice, will kind of fit around these things. But if you start with the little things, with all the emails, all the requests, and don't know what your God-established priorities are, then you're going to find that the most important things God has called you to do, you're going to end week by week not having actually done those things. You've got to learn to set priorities based on what Jesus has made priorities for you. An important element in this is discovering, by the way, your own personal calling. Your own, God has called you to some specific things, usually in line with your spiritual gifts. I think I've told you this before, but in college, I did not understand this. And so every time a speaker would get up and explain what real Christians did, you know, real Christians love missions. I was like, well, I better start going on some mission trips. And so in 10 years from when I was a college student, I went to 39 different countries because that's what real Christians do. They go on mission trips. And then I remember the guy coming and talking about real Christians care about the poor. I'm like, well, I better adopt a compassion child. Better adopt two. Because I got to do this. And then the guy came and, and preached on adoption. You know, and I'm like, well, real Christians adopt. I better adopt, but I'm single and I'm 19. So I don't think that's going to happen. So what, you know, I better plan to, I'm going to make this part of the negotiations when I get married. We got to adopt. It's part of the prenup, you know. And, uh, and and then, and then I read Jim Elliott's biography. You ever read that? You know, the missionary to Ecuador? Real Christians are single because then they don't have a family they got to worry about. They can just go die somewhere. I'm like, well, real Christians are single, you know? And so I'm like, but if I'm single, then I'm, can I adopt? Can you do both those things? I'm not really sure how to do all this. And I, I learned a principle, listen, in college that I would save my life, certainly save my spiritual life. It was this principle. Not everything that comes from heaven has my name on it. I mean, God gives the whole mission to the whole church. It means you've got to be sympathetic to all of it. 
And you certainly should leave space for God to do something you're not expecting, but not everything that comes from heaven has my name on it. I got to figure out what the Holy Spirit puts my name on, and I got to make sure I pursue those things with excellence, because in pursuing those things is when I am being faithful to Jesus. Kevin DeYoung says it like this. I love this statement. Let me find out where I wrote it. Here it is. The person who never sets priorities is the person who does not believe in his own is that finitude or finitude? How many of you think it's finitude? Raise your hand. Finitude? Raise your hand. Finitude it is. <laughs> I'm a people pleaser. Um, the person who does not believe in his own finitude is the person who never establishes priorities because they think, well, Jesus saved the whole world, therefore I've got to save the whole world. Newsflash, Jesus was God. You are not. And so Jesus made you a very finite creature that you are supposed to pursue the parts of the mission that he has given to you, and then you're not supposed to obsess about the things you're not doing. Uh, I've been finishing up this biography of uh, Sam James, who is the guy who planted our church 50 years ago. Um, fascinating biography. I love it. Um, he tells this story after, being, um, he, after he planted our church, he went to Vietnam. He said, after being in Vietnam for about four years, when he saw all the incredible medical needs there, he said, I just made up my mind that if I were really going to be effective, I needed to be a doctor. I needed to go get some medical training. He said, so I, my wife and I, we were making plans. I was going to come back and enroll in medical school at Duke University, and then I was going to become a doctor, and I was going to come back and be more effective. He said, and a Vietnamese brother in Christ pulled me aside and said, Sam, if you do this, you are being unfaithful to God. And Sam said, why? He said, because God made you good at teaching the Bible, at, at catalyzing vision. He made you good at discipleship. And for you to take time away from that calling to go and get trained in this, even though you see this as being useful, is being unfaithful to what the Holy Spirit has given to you. Right? And so he said, at that point, I quit obsessing about the things I wasn't doing and started to focus on the things that God has made me good at. Now, some of you, it's the opposite. God has made you good at medicine or God has made you good at business. You need to figure out what it is that God gave you for his kingdom. And yes, you're going to have a lot of things you're involved in, but you need to prioritize the things that the Holy Spirit has especially given to you. And by the way, part of this is recognizing that there are certain seasons in your life where you're going to focus on different things more. Just like God put seasons in the environment, he put seasons in your life. And my wife talks about this. My wife tells me that, you know, Veronica says, I would love to go on every mission trip you go on. Every time you travel, I'd love to go with you. But this is a season that God has given me where I have four kids, young kids at home. Now, she still travels with me some, and she's still very involved in the ministry, but she's like, I'm not going to be able to do it as much as I want because I know that this season, the big thing that God has given to me is, is to be there present with these children. And so I can't farm that out to somebody else, so I'm going to have to say no a little bit on this side so that I can say yes to the right things. Right? There, there are different seasons. Now, listen, I do not want you to use that as an excuse for you to check out a ministry. Because at every point in your life, you've got to be involved, you've got to be serving, so do not hear that. I'm just saying that in different seasons, you accentuate different things. Uh, one of my favorite authors, Peter Kreeft, was once asked, he's an older man now, he was once asked, um, what's the, your favorite book you've ever written? He said, favorite book I've ever written. The one I didn't write when my kids were young. That's my favorite book. Because he recognized that even as a great author, there were seasons that he should do certain things. You college students, there's a season for you to study and get prepared so that God can use you, and there's a season for you to give your life away for the world, 
And right now you want to be out giving your life away for the world. And God says the way you can serve me is by being a good student, getting prepared. Yes, serve your fellow students, lead them to Christ, get involved in ministry. But do not anticipate other seasons and get into them. You be faithful in the season I have for you right now. You go sit at the feet of Jesus, you find your sufficiency in him, and then you do what he tells you to do. And then, listen, obey these four rules I'm going to give you. I I don't like to give you a lot of rules, but these are really good ones, okay? And you're going to like them, I promise. Here here we are. Letter A. Sleep. Sleep. Leave the city to God. Listen, it is not your busyness that indicates closeness to God. It is your ability to sleep. And if you got medical insomnia, I'm not saying you're unfaithful to God, okay? That's not, I'm not saying that. I'm just saying that there's a sense of rest that comes from walking with Jesus. Because he's got the city. My college pastor said this. He said, sometimes the most spiritual, faith-filled thing you can do is take a nap. You're like, this is the best sermon ever. I can't wait to get home and apply this this afternoon. I'm going to apply it right now. You know, no, don't, don't apply it now. But here's why I, I'm excited about you applying it. Um, D.A. Carson's a theologian. He preached a sermon on doubt one time that I thought was absolutely fascinating because he said, he says, the six major causes of doubt, five of them pretty standard, exactly what you would think they would be. The one that caught me totally off guard, he says, the number six cause of doubt, people doubting God, sleep deprivation. Sleep deprivation, he said, because, and I'll quote him. He said, when you burn the candle at both ends, you engage in more and more cynicism. God made us as complicated beings, uniting our spiritual health to our physical well-being. So sometimes the most spiritual thing you can do is take a nap. Oh, but we love to regale each other with stories of great saints who got up at 3 a.m. and prayed, right? Yep, and they went to bed at 6 p.m. Because when the sun went down in those days, there was no more light, so you just went to bed. So if you want to be a saint and get up at 3 a.m., then you be a saint and go to bed at 6 p.m. Did you know this? I, listen, this is, I, I didn't realize this. This blew me away. The average American today gets two hours less of sleep per night than our great-grandparents did 100 years ago. The average American today gets two hours less than our great-grandparents because they went to sleep when the sun went down. Work hard in the day and then sleep and leave the city or the ministry or the family to God. Here's the second thing, flows right out of it. Refuse to worry about tomorrow. Refuse means you make a choice. I'm not going to worry about tomorrow. Here's what Jesus said. Therefore, do not be anxious, fearful about tomorrow. Why? Because tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Tomorrow has its own troubles. I I love that. Don't worry about tomorrow. Why, Jesus? Because tomorrow's got its own troubles. Well, that's exactly what I was worried about about tomorrow. Right? You know what Jesus is saying there? Don't worry about tomorrow. Tomorrow's got its own troubles. I'll be there tomorrow, just like I'm here today. So why don't you trust me to deal with the problems today and then trust that I'm the same yesterday, today, and forever, and so I'll be there tomorrow. And when you get up tomorrow, you're going to have a whole new set of problems, but you've got a whole new set of infinite power. So then you can just trust that the same God who's with you today will be with you tomorrow. So quit worrying about tomorrow and just worry about today. Jesus is going back to a principle um, in the Old Testament that was called the principle of manna. You know manna, you know that story? Israel's wandering in the wilderness, they don't have food, so God rains down basically it's like Ritz crackers and cheese whiz on them every day. And the rule was you could only collect enough for that day. 
And of course, back then, there were Martha type A kind of people who were like, well, you can't just collect enough for one day because what if God forgets one day? You know, so I got to get my own store of manna. I got to dig me a hole and I got to bury some manna and build a manna shelter and get some manna insurance and get some guns and write a manifesto so everybody else runs out of manna. Of manna. I'm going to have some, you know, and, and so that's what, that's, what they, that's what they did. But the moment that you stored more than you could deal with that day, it bred worms and it stank. And what God was trying to teach them is, you trust me for the provision today, and tomorrow you're going to get up hungry, but I'm going to rain down some more manna. And what he's trying to teach you is, you worry about God's provisions today and let God worry about tomorrow, because God's always the same, and he's yesterday, today, and forever. Let her see. Create some margin. Create some margin. Now, unfortunately, I don't have time to go into this one to a great extent because I have left no margin in this sermon. But when your schedule is hyper-packed, you can't deal with the things that God genuinely brings to you. You know the story of the Good Samaritan where the guy's walking along, there's a guy on the side of the road, and he's passing by? When I read that story, here's how I read that. People typically talk about it being a lack of compassion. But I don't think, you might disagree if you know me and you're like, I don't know, but here's how I see myself. I don't think it's a lack of compassion that would cause me not to stop. I think I would like feel sorry for the guy, but I'd be like, oh, kind of side of the road. I ain't got no time for that. I'd call my assistant and be like, would you send out one of the interns of the church come take care of this guy? I, I, I got to go to the church and prepare a sermon on compassion, and I got a limited amount of time to do that in, right? It's my schedule has no room for God to present things to me that he wants me to deal with, right? And so I'm supposed to create some margin so when the Holy Spirit does bring something to me, I've got the capacity to be able to deal with it. Here's what John Ortberg says about this. this is, listen, this is good. Love and hurry are fundamentally incompatible. Love always takes time. And time is the one thing hurried people do not have. You see, hurry, busyness, reduces your capacity to love other people. One of the keys to a happy, faithful life is margin. Letter D, number four, observe the Sabbaths. I'll tell you why I pluralize that in a minute. First of all, let me explain to you what a Sabbath is. When God set up the economic structure of Israel, he gave them a rule that came out of nowhere, it seemed like. He said, six days you're going to work, seventh day you're going to take off. That didn't seem revolutionary to you because we're Americans and we feel like our God-given right is to take off Saturday and Sunday. But back then, nobody took any days off because in an agrarian society, the crops had to be harvested daily. They had to be plowed daily. You were working every single day. The idea that you would work for six days and then just take off a day and do nothing, that was crazy. That was crazy. But God had him do it, listen, because he wanted a space so that he could show up and multiply what they did on the other six days and give them more than if they had worked by themselves for seven days. The principle of the Sabbath is that God sometimes wants you to back off of what you feel like you need to do to give him space so that he can do what he will do and just be God. Here's how God applied that same principle to money. He told them to tithe. He didn't tell them to tithe because they had, he knew they had 10% in their budget they could do without. He told them to tithe because he wanted them to have less to meet their needs than they felt like they needed so that they could give him space, 10% of their budget, where he could show up and he could multiply and he could show them that he was the God who provided and not what they could earn. Really, there are three Sabbaths that God establishes in your life. One is the actual Sabbath. The other one is the tithe. The third one is sleep. They're gifts. They're gifts that God gives to you to relieve you of the burden of provision in all these most important things. 
you're used to thinking of them as duties. I've got to tithe. I've got to Sabbath. I hate this. They're gifts. That's why Jesus said, listen, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and get busy. Is that what he said? No, come to me and I will give you rest. The sign that you're walking with Jesus is not hyper-business. It's this sense of rest. They're gifts that God gives to you. They're unique privileges for those of you who are walking with Jesus. See, if you're not a Christian, that's kind of bad news. I'm not trying to be snooty to you, but I'm just trying to tell you those who are Christians have a companion, a Savior, a God who is walking beside them saying, do less than you have to do. Work for six days, take off a Sabbath. Man, take 10% of your money and give it to things that you love. Things that you just, you, you want, God, give it. And then I'll just multiply the other 90% and I'll multiply the six days and I'll just show you that I'm God, you don't have to be. It's so sweet, I'm gonna tell you, to walk with Jesus when you let him be God and you let yourself just be the creature who obeys. So he says, create some margin. He says, observe the Sabbaths. Come to Jesus, rest in him and do what he tells you to do. Let me show you something in the Old Testament real quick, just real quick. That this is established in Genesis 1. I bet you've never read it this way though. You know, it's just an interesting thing in Genesis 1 when, when God created the world. You ever catch this? It says, an evening and morning were the first day. And then evening and morning. And you think, why did he write it like that? Like, don't we think of morning and then evening as the day? Isn't that how you and I talk about it? Why? Here's why. Evening, he tells you, is when they walked with God. Morning was when they worked in the garden. Rest came before work. They came out of their relationship with God and then they went into their work with a fundamentally different attitude, and that is they're not God. They're not having to provide for themselves because the God they walk with that evening is the God, see, that provides for them. You and I understand that even more clearly, right? Because now our Sabbath is Sunday, which is the day that Jesus resurrected where he received us into himself and said, I will never leave you or forsake you. So you were supposed to begin your week, the first day of the week, by reminding yourself that God is God, and then you work the other five or six days with a sense of rest that you gained from reflecting on your position in Christ on Sunday. You're like, well, that's why I don't go to Saturday church, because we got to do it on Sunday. Evening and morning are the first day. Uh-huh. That's right. It starts on Saturday night. Boom. All right. So, <laughs> but the principle is, listen... Rest is not what God gives you when you're exhausted. Rest, God gives you what is what he gives you to begin, right? It's what he gives you to begin. That's why he's telling Martha, start with me. This is the best thing. And then work from there. And if you do that, you'll rest even while you're working because you're resting in me. Listen, let me close all this by giving you a warning that Jesus gave. Probably in this passage, it's probably the most somber warning he gives to us. The greatest danger of busyness is that it keeps you from the one necessary thing. What's the one necessary thing? Walking with God, knowing God. He, he, said, he, says, he said, Mary's chosen the one thing that'll never be taken away from her. Everything else that you're giving your time to is gonna be taken away from you. Career, kingdom, family, health, wealth, it's all gonna evaporate. But if you walk with Jesus and you teach your family to walk with Jesus, that'll never be taken away. That's why Moses, in the greatest Psalm on time, Psalm 90 verse 12, Lord, teach us to number our days that we may apply our hearts to learn wisdom. Teach me how all these things that I'm working for fade away so that then I can apply my heart to the first and best thing, which is to know you and walk with you. You need to give very somber reflection to how you're spending your time because how you spend your time is how you spend your life. What does your calendar say about your trust in God? 
Do you, are you observing the Sabbath? Are you observing them in your finances and in your schedule? And then are you trusting? Does your calendar show that? What does your calendar show you prioritize? I mean, some of you may be on the opposite end of the spectrum. You're not busy at all because you're independently wealthy. You became that way at 30, and so you're retired for the rest of your life. Let me tell you something. You are bought with a price. You are not your own. God did not give you that wealth. He did not make you independently wealthy so that you could lay around and just pursue what you want all your life. He freed you up so that you could more fully devote yourself to his kingdom. You and I will give an account for how we spend our time. What does your calendar say about what you trust most and what you prize most? Because how you spend your time is how you spend your life. See, why don't you bow your heads at all of our campuses, if you would. I'm just going to leave you for a minute, a couple minutes, to let the Holy Spirit soak this into your heart. Man, give him freedom to move. You're like, well, I don't know what to think about in this moment. Just ask yourself that question. What does my calendar indicate I prize the most? Just think about that. What does my calendar indicate about my relationship with God? Because if you say Jesus is most important, but your entire week is spending, spent pursuing you, then I'd say your calendar better reflects where you are with God than your mouth does. So let the Holy Spirit soak through you on this. And in just a few minutes at all of our campuses, our worship pastors will come and they'll, they'll lead us to celebrate the greatness of our God again. You take a couple minutes and just meditate on this.